Infirmary Media. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know, but now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the 80s and 90s battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. Let's take a look at this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for in the week experience. But first, joining us on commentary as always, please welcome back to the show, Man Crush. What's up? Uh, you know, I went out today to go shopping. I got scolded for standing too close to the six-foot line on checkout. So I'm a little down on, like, I'm a little down today because I got yelled at by a cashier. Well, I expected more out of you, Man Crush. <laughs> I did, the, like, the, the next lady was, like, 12 feet away from me. And she was like, stay behind the red line. I was like, all right. So this is the highlight of my day. Let's let's do this. What do you what do you guys have? I don't even remember what years you have, so I'm interested. I am Mark James, and for this week, I will once again be representing the 1980s with the first week of April, 1983. And tonight, my opponent. I'm Mike Ranger, host of the Video Rangers podcast, and I'm representing the 90s with April 1st through 7th, 1996. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So let me introduce to you tonight's celebrity guest judge. She is an actress and a comedian who is best known for her role as Sarah Rush, the alluring daughter of Ted Knight on the all-time classic ABC sitcom, Too Close for Comfort. Please welcome Judge Lydia Cornell. Hi, I'm so happy to be here with you guys. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. Duelers, time to jump into the Wayback Machine as we play more Dueling Decades. All right, let's toss it right down to our judge, Lydia Cornell, for the official toss-off for this game. Okay, here goes. I'm going to toss my blouse in the air. Just kidding here. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, you, you call it today. Uh, I'll go with uh, heads. I got heads. I did. I tossed the diamond. It's heads. All right. Mike Ranger, you win the toss and take control of the board. What category would you like to go with first? You know what? I'm going to go with hot products. Ooh, off the bat. Not hot pockets, right? No. (laughs) No. I'd win. Can't wait for the day that somebody gets hot pockets. Hot pockets. Yeah, that would be amazing, but nobody's had that yet. Not yet. All right, Mike, where are we going? All right, so... 
1988, FIFA awarded the United States the 1994 World Cup when the U.S. Soccer Federation agreed to start a Division I professional soccer league. As a result, Major League Soccer was formed in 1995 and started its first season on April 6, 1996. I found an article in the Daily News from April 4, 1996 by Michael Lewis who says, It all begins at a sold-out 31,000-seat Spartan Stadium in San Jose. The San Jose Clash would play D.C. United at 8 p.m. on ESPN. Lewis went on to say that, much was riding on the 10-team league. If it fails, MLS could be the last attempt at establishing a top-rate soccer league until the next century. Currently, Major League Soccer has 26 teams with hopes to expand to 30 in the near future. So we got the uh, wow. first season of uh, Major League Soccer. They've had 31,000 people go to games since then. Well, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> cumulative i went to one of those games yeah it's it's fun though like they they do a really good job but the the game we went to is a new york game which actually they played in jersey there was only like maybe 1500 people there wow it was crazy so that's a big difference from what year do you have again 96 96 yeah 96 man they had thirty one thousand people all right what do you got for your second selection all right, so uh, I found an article in the ticker column of the Daily News from April 4th, 1996, titled, Disney Signs Mattel. Walt Disney and Mattel announced a far-reaching alliance that gives the toy maker worldwide rights for all upcoming TV and film properties. This gave the manufacturer the toy right for the upcoming Disney animated film Hercules in 1997. Mattel beat out Hasbro for the rights and continued this partnership until around 2015 when Disney moved its princess line to Hasbro. But in 2019, Disney and Mattel announced a renewed partnership. Mattel has had a working relationship with Disney since 1955 when it became the first sponsor of the Mickey Mouse Club. The Hasbro deal is set to expire in 2020 and currently Mattel produces all toys based off of Pixar movies. Oh, wow. So what we have is uh, Mattel and Disney agreeing to an exclusive deal on all upcoming movie TV properties they had. All right. So for my first mm. selection, I'm going to head over to newspapers.com in a newspaper dated April 7th, 1983, out of the Herald News out of Passaic, New Jersey. And we have an announcement for a brand new product. The wood products industry is certainly not known for coming up with new product on a frequent basis. 2x4s and sheets of plywood have been around for generations with little, if any, changes. But now, there is something new from the industry, and it looks like a winner. It is called Wafer Board. And many observers are predicting that this new panel will rapidly overtake plywood as the product choice for both construction and the do-it-yourselfer. Everyone's probably familiar with wafer board at this point. It's in every home. It's like pieces of chipped thin wood all pressed together and glued. Mm. Particle board, you mean? Uh, it's bigger particles than actual particle board. Like you can actually yeah. see like wood chips all glued together. Oh, it's wow. called wafer board. Actually, they show it in a picture in here. Somebody's using it for the fronts of their kitchen cabinets. I Ooh. don't know anybody who would actually do that in their own home. But uh, wafer board, it's a brand new product. It's in every single construction outlet known to man, any Home Depot, Lowe's, and probably in your own home. So that's my first product. My second hot product, I don't have hot pockets, but I do have some hot wings. Because oddly enough, 
On April Fool's Day, 1983, six businessmen got together and they incorporated a brand new business. Hooters was born on April Fool's Day, 1983. That's not the day that they opened the first franchise. That is the day that they incorporated the business, just to be clear. But the concept of Hooters came along when all these businessmen got together and they wanted to open a new restaurant that they couldn't get kicked out of. Oh, my God. So they opened up Hooters, offering uh, fine finger foods, 50s and 60s music, and a happy, nostalgic feel that uh, Americans can get lost in. And lots and lots of plywood. If you remember all the early Hooters, it's all just wrapped in plywood. T11 plywood. (laughs) No wafer board to be seen anywhere, but... Plenty of plywood and hot wings. So those are my two selections. The birth of wafer board and hot wings from Hooters incorporated on April Fool's Day, 1983. That's the wafer board. That's a really deep cut, man. You must have been digging for a while. For that one. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I came with the first foaming car wash. I had to step it up with going by wafer board. <laughs> That's solid. I have a lot to say about the restaurant. My book is about it. My book takes place in in a Hooters in a tilted kilt. Really? (laughs) Yeah. My husband took me there for my anniversary with the kids. And I had to have a long talk with boys about sex. And they were preteens. At Hooters. (laughs) I want to know what this conversation sounded like. Yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It is so wild and funny. You'll see. We're going to make a TV series out of it. One night in a restaurant, it's called. But Hooters is the, is where it really took place. So when you brought that up, I'm like, what? That's Man. not my favorite restaurant. And there are a lot of women, not to be a feminist or anything, but a lot of women are, they're suing a manager at one of the Hooters, I think, because he was shooting spitwads through a straw into the waitress's oh, cleavage. <laughs> this is like recent? Yeah, well, in 2007. So, I mean, that's when this, this happened and they're suing him now. Because all the women just woke up and went, we were treated like sex objects, wearing bikini, you know, little tiny midriff top. The tilted kilt is the worst. But I understand. I mean, you, you want your, a lot of men just thought it was normal for women to walk around and, you know, half naked. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that place is, it's bizarre. They took me there for, I was in the Marine Corps at the time. So it was probably like my maybe 27th or 28th birthday. And wow, uh, you were friends in the Marine of mine. Corps? Yeah, yeah, this long it feels like it was forever ago now, but this is uh this is going back probably about 13 years. My friends we were down in San Diego and they're like, "Oh, let's go to the the Hooters down there because I guess it's like one of the original Hooters or something." I've been to that Hooters. Have you yes, really? I've it's been, actually really nice. I've been to the it's San like, Diego Hooters. <laughs> they told the waitress it was my birthday and I had no like I didn't know that they were doing this. So the waitress comes over and she's like, "Oh, can you come with me a second? Uh I need you to help move something uh, like something some bizarre request so i was like yeah sure so what they were doing was they were setting me up on a stool and she was like here's this wooden stool i want you to stand on it and uh hang this up for me and i'm like uh, okay like you could have picked anybody in the restaurant you came over to me but and i was like yeah sure i'll do it so i'm standing there and i'm like hanging some bullshit thing that she gave me and they all start singing happy birthday i guess this is the way that they do it at hooters to like surprise the shit out of you and you're on this tiny oh wooden God. stool that you could just fall off at like any given second and i was like what in the hell is going on but yeah that was that's my uh fantastic cooter story but i i never really liked the wings oh that's funny but anyhow we're uh we throw this one down to you lydia what do you have for this round so i get to vote on which of these four hot products yep are the best it's either the 90s or the 80s which one well i was gonna 
can I ask about the 90s again? Did you mention Hasbro versus Mattel or Mattel? Um, basically, my article was about uh, Mattel and Disney signing a deal that gave Mattel exclusive rights or worldwide rights to making toys for their movie and TV properties. Wow, that's interesting. Um, because Mattel, the first Barbie doll, I had one of the, you know, the 1960s Barbie dolls. It was kind of a Mattel was my favorite company for a while. Then I realized Barbie's waistline is too skinny to ever live up to. I mean, the woman is size zero <laughs> with these big boobs. Um, it's between Hooters and, and the, the product. Let me think. Okay, I'm going to go with, I got to go with the 80s. I love the 80s. I'm, I'm from the 80s. So I'm going to go with Hooters because it represents everything I'm against. <laughs> All right, so I win this round, pick up a point, and take control of the board. Uh, wow. Let's go over to the movies round for round number two. That's early. All right, so my first movie came out April 1st, 1983, and it is the classic that you may or may not have heard of, Heart Like a Wheel, starring Bonnie Bedelia, who you may know as uh, the wife of John McClane in all of the Die Hard movies. Yeah, she's great. I love her. I'm going to read an article that came out from The Hollywood Reporter in its original review. Uh, the most accomplished fuel racer in, in the history of the National Hot Rod Association is a woman. This Aurora Films presentation chronicles the story of Shirley Muldowney in her quest to break the sex as well as the time barrier in one of the nation's most macho arenas, motorsport racing. So the movie, again, is called Heart Like a Wheel. came out April 1st, 1983. Uh, did not do too well at the box office, only came, brought in $272,000 cumulative worldwide gross. So I'm assuming it was a very limited release. The movie did go on to get praised uh, for its story and Bonnie Bedelia's acting performance. It also co-stars Bo Bridges and Anthony Edwards. Yeah, I knew it. I knew it had a Bridges yeah. brother in there. <laughs> go skiing with the Bridges. Lloyd Bridges and Jeff and Bo would have these ski tournaments up in Tahoe with the Robert Conrad who recently died from um, the wild, wild west. But anyways, that was fun. We would go skiing with all these celebrity ski tournaments. And... Oh, you said ski tournament. I thought you said ski tournament. Ski tournament. I thought it was like a shooting. Slalom. There was like a, a shooting event or something. I had a slalom with Brook Shields and cheap. <laughs> all right. So for my second movie selection, unlike my first movie, this movie did not do a lot for women's rights also released the same exact day. April 1st, 1983, I give you a frolicking youth comedy about zany high school students set in the 1960s. I give you the cult classic comedy, Screwballs. Yeah. <laughs> I know Mike Ranger is a huge fan of this movie. Of course, it was written by uh, Jim Wynorski and co-written by Linda Shane, who also co-stars in the movie as well. Uh, I actually watched this movie for the first time today. I had a hard time getting through it. It The story is a little convoluted. The whole movie sets up all of these kids getting detention. And the dialogue of the film, I'm going to say, is a little remedial. It, and then I realized Jim Wynorski wrote it, and it made perfect sense. So, <laughs> so, so you, you didn't get through the movie because of the story? Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. I, I usually just end up jerking off after the first 20 minutes. and. <laughs> oh. <laughs> do you do it in the meat locker? Because in in the movie, one of the kids, high school kids, mind you, gets detention.
for masturbating inside of a meat locker. No. Oh, God. Yes, but everything inside was USDA approved. I don't even like that right. word. <laughs> so those are my first two movie selection, Screwballs and Heart Like a Wheel. Mike Ranger, what do you oh, got yeah. for movies, man? Oh, well, let me tell you, sir. Because on April 3rd, 1996, Martin Lawrence made his directorial debut in the comic thriller A Thin Line Between Love and Hate. Lawrence also co-wrote and starred in the film as Darnell Wright, a fast-talking party man who lies to the wrong woman. So now the man who's always looking for action is about to get a lot more than he can handle. Because everyone knows that a night full of passion can give you a life full of pain. This fatal attraction-esque film grossed over $30 million against an $8 million budget, a thin line between love and hate. While some women are waiting to exhale, this one is ready to get oh, even. Yeah, remember that movie? I do remember that movie. Yeah, I, I'm sure you walked right by it in Blockbuster. <laughs> Several times. Yeah, a bunch of times. <laughs> you just watched it move around the store. It didn't even have a cover that you would think would be a comedy. It actually looked like a Waiting to Exhale cover. A thin line between love and hate. I remember the title really clearly. Okay. What's your second one? Okay. On my second one, on April 3rd, 1996, Richard Gere and Edward Norton star in Primal Fear. Mm. Norton makes his film debut as Aaron Stampler, a 19-year-old altar boy who is accused of murdering an archbishop. Richard Gere plays defense lawyer Martin Vale and a Chicago defense attorney who offers to take Aaron's case pro bono. Norton's performance earned him numerous award nominations, including an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. The film topped the U.S. box office for three weeks, grossing over $100 million against a $30 million budget. It was like we were dancing, Marty. I just saw <laughs> Ed Norton talk about that. We just went to all the screenings for the Academy Awards and he was speaking and people who produced that movie came out on stage and were praising him. It was his first movie, I think, at the age of 19. He's amazing in he that. Super young. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, he's, he's really good in that. Oh, awesome. The movie is such a head fuck too. I love that kind of movie with thriller. Yeah, that, that's just great. It's funny that like that movie came out in 96 and it's just a thriller. But it had a $30 million budget, wow. which is insane. Like, what did they spend $30 million on? Richard Gere. It had to be for distribution or something. Yeah. Was, was that all for Richard Gere? I don't know. His hair looks great in it. I'm glad you guys know who he is. I have this line that I wrote. Yeah, well, of course. I read somewhere. I think it was that great philosopher Richard Gere who said, all my suffering is a result of thinking about myself too much. He said that in a book and I was looking for it and I thought, nobody's going to remember who Richard Gere is, so I have to use a different person like matthew mcconaughey because he's more current but you guys know richard gear no i love who doesn't like richard gear yeah of course he's huge officer and a gentleman's one of my all-time favorites i grew up watching that movie well me too i love officer and gentleman my son is 26 so he doesn't really know who you know well i think if you like if you're a family guy fan too they bring him up quite a bit oh do they yeah, well, not in not in a good light, but they do bring him up a lot about him and uh, what is it like squirrels or ferrets or something? Oh, the like, gerbil, the urban gerbil, toilet paper roll. Yeah, and gerbils. Get it the right, gerbil. man crush. Yes. Pretend like you don't know. <laughs> that was so weird. At least Lydia knew she. she <laughs> I, I called the urban gerbil because I wrote a whole chapter on it. I remember when he was accused of making love with a gerbil, and the whole world believed this. <laughs> and everywhere I went, even my own hairdresser said, I know the nurse who removed the gerbil. And it was just such a disgusting <laughs> story. Everyone knew someone involved with this story, but it had to be an urban legend, right? 
No, well, it, it wasn't a gerbil. It was a hedgehog. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the best part of the whole thing that you just said is you said he was making love to a gerbil. <laughs> like, like it was a good situation for the gerbil. <laughs> Well, listen, if if Richard Gere is going to have sex with an animal, he's going to make love to it. If you've seen the guy, right? I couldn't put it any more politely. <laughs> I guess, I guess. He's going to take that gerbil right out of the streets, make gerbil. it a pretty woman. <laughs> I want to hear like Lydia, when you first heard that yeah. story, did somebody like how did somebody present that story? Oh my to you? god. First of all, my hairdresser was Greek. And I thought, is it because he's Greek that he's telling me this? Because they like little boys. <laughs> it's so horrible. No, no, no. So I tried to like, I sat there with my mouth wide open and I went around telling everyone the story myself. I must have it spread like wildfire, probably in my neighborhood because of me. And I, even my Presbyterian aunt, I told her and she looked at me like I was crazy. So it just spread like crazy and we all believed it. That's what's weird about it. He, he described it in detail. What were the details of the story, though? Because yeah. I like I've only heard it like second or third hand by now, and all I know is like, was it like a toilet paper roll? Yeah, yeah. and like he like put the gerbil <laughs> in the roll. Is that how? Yes. Is that what the story that you were spreading? Yes, I, I was like, why was I telling people this myself? Because he convinced me it was so real, and I I sat there, I couldn't get over it. I remember I heard it from him, and he seemed like he knew firsthand from the nurse that it was a toilet paper roll, and the gerbil went in there because it's. <laughs> It felt good or something. And I, then I started investigating strange sexual techniques. <laughs> how, like, I can't even imagine how you can get the toilet paper roll into one's asshole. Like, wouldn't it, like, collapse? Oh, my God. Like, I mean, gerbils can probably squeeze into anything. First of all, it's so bizarre. He was on a talk show. He was on, like, 60 Minutes, and Barbara Walters was interviewing him. I remember he was so dignified. He didn't even answer the question. He didn't even look at her and acknowledge the question. And I thought, what? That's because he he's a Buddhist and he has this great faith, I think, or, you know, spiritual calm. No, that was just because he was embarrassed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember I was mistaken for a hooker by my mother and the police on my way to an entourage audition one day. I was dressed in a dog collar and a leash and like thigh-high, you know, leather boots and fishnet stockings. And I had to be, it was for a, um, the sequel to Pretty Woman. And I'm driving, I'm late to the audition going over Coldwater Canyon and we're all bumper to bumper and a woman jumps in front of the car in front of me and we all crash into each other. And I get out of the car like this, the cops come and they have to tow my car. <laughs> and I had, I kept, I kept saying, I'm not a hooker. I'm an actress. Here's my headshot. And then they said, Oh, too close for comfort. And they signed autographs. And then I go home and it's 10 in the morning. It's early. And there's a woman at my door knocking on the door, a social worker. I duck in the bushes She's my nanny opens the door and she goes, I'm here to investigate um, charges of child abuse because my little boy was screaming and the neighbor called the police because the baby was screaming and some, she was bathing him with, with cold water. She, he didn't want the water on his head. And I had to duck in the bushes. And then I'm not kidding. This actually happened at 10 in the morning. I get out of the bushes. I walk over and I thought, if Richard Gere can overcome the whole world thinking he made love to a gerbil, I can overcome this. <laughs> I'm just going to tell her, I'm, you know, I'm going to walk up to the door and just say, look, she looked at me and she goes, you're just getting home from work? And I said, no, I'm not a hooker. <laughs> and I pull out my, my headshot and it's a picture of me on a, in a bikini in all fours. You've got to see this picture. I'm going to send it to you. Oh, my God. Oh, I have it right here. <laughs> no, this is me. I'm, it's for real. And I had to keep convincing her I was an actress. It was an embarrassing day. <laughs>
That's freaking fantastic. That's a great story. Is that in your, is that's coming out in your book? Yeah. And we're going to, it's like a curb. Your, you wouldn't believe how embarrassing it is to be a woman in Hollywood. You, you have to thrive on humiliation. You know, I bet you actually, you were on curb your enthusiasm, right? I heard you start to mention that. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I love Larry David. We're, we're kind of friends. Oh my so. God. We just finished uh, my wife and I, we binge season 10 yesterday. Matter oh, of was fact. It funny? Oh my God. Yeah, that guy, he, was hilarious, he is great. Oh, yeah. He could do anything. And then I I happen to look up, because I'm not going to give too much away if you haven't seen season 10, but he's uh, he's spending a lot of money, basically, in season 10. So I just want to see what he was worth. Larry David's worth like $400 million. Yeah. It's crazy. And then yeah. I, I looked up his story. Yeah, yeah, I looked up his story, like how, you know, he, he had like hard times going through the 80s. And then he met uh, Jerry at a party and, you know, they just kind of hit it off and then uh, wrote mm-hmm. the show together. It's an amazing story. If you uh, if you haven't seen that, go check it out and look up pictures of Larry David in the 80s because that's hilarious, too. His big fro. And they used oh to throw God. tomatoes at him because he was such yeah. a bad comic. Oh, God, he's funny as hell, though. All right. Anyhow, where were we? <laughs> All right. Let's toss it down to Lydia Cornell for the judgment for the movies round. I'm going to go with a 90s Primal Fear. I love that movie. It's a thriller. It was. I just signed Ed Norton talking about it. And yeah, okay, 90s. Yeah, yeah that kind of makes sense. I'd never even heard of Heart Like a Wheel before. I, I never had either. <laughs> as far as releases go, it was a very thin week. The week before, the week after, of course, some major releases. But the week of Easter, not too many movies coming out. So Mike Ranger, you win this round, tying up the game at one apiece. You take control of the board. Woo-hoo. All right, I think uh, let's uh, let's go to TV. Yay! Something Lydia might know a lot about. All right, so I found an article from April fourth, nineteen ninety six, in the Daily News called "Clarissa Makes a Bewitching Sabrina." The article says that this Sunday at eight p.m. on Showtime. There will be a telemovie called Sabrina the Teenage Witch with Clarissa Explains It All star Melissa Joan Hart. Based on the Archie comic spinoff, this would be the unofficial pilot for the projected ABC series premiering in the fall. Hart plays Sabrina, a 16-year-old high school student who discovers she's a witch and is mentored by her two aunts. The show ran for seven seasons, 163 episodes, has had two animated series, video games, and a successful merchandise line. Melissa Joan Hart, mid-90s. She was doing things. Drive me crazy. (laughs) My son, we love that show. It's really cute. That's huge. Like, she was, like you just said, she basically owned the 90s. Did you all find her appealing? Did you guys have a crush on her? Um, Who did you have crushes on in the 90s? A couple different people. Um, Yeah, Topanga. Katie Holmes. Probably Kelly from uh, Saved by the Bell. I liked yeah, her more when she was on uh, 90210. Ooh, yeah. You're talking about Tiffany and the Thiessen? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The whole 90210 cast at one point, I think I, I went through all of them. I was like, started out with liking Kelly, and then I switched to Brenda. And then- <laughs> Dylan. D- Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who didn't? Come on. Who? Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> Which one was Dylan? Dylan McKay. Luke Perry. Was, oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> Luke Perry. Oh, look. Oh, poor Luke Perry. Yeah, yeah. that's a sad story. Yeah, that's sad. All right, so what's your second pick? That's huge. You know what? It's crazy about that, too, is that you said it started on Showtime? 
The all right. So what they did was they premiered it as like a made-for-TV movie on Showtime, but it was the pretty much a pilot for the planned series that was starting in the fall. Hmm. All right, that's cool. Uh, so in my second pick on April second, nineteen ninety-six, on ABC, a beloved child star of a family sitcom five seasons into its run said, "If I didn't know better, I'd think I was dying." And at that moment, 90s television audience got an uncomfortable dose of humor not seen since The Bicycle Man. And for this hit family sitcom, Home Improvement, it truly was the longest day. I'm talking about the episode where the Taylor family finds out middle son Randy, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, may have cancer. Despite this, the show does not miss a beat. The jokes don't stop and neither does the audience's laughter. For every somber moment, is followed by a total disregard for human decency. But that's exactly what makes it a very special episode. For those who haven't seen it, JTT does not have cancer, and the next week he's in the school play like nothing happened. Spoiler. I remember that episode. Wow. That was a tough one. What did they think he had? Just so out of touch. Um, I, thought, I, I forget the detail. It was something with his thyroid, I think. Ah. I forget. Right around this time is when I kind of stopped watching that show. <laughs> Sounds depressing. Yeah. As the kids got older, it was... Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the moment where the show officially jumped the shark. Yeah, jumped the shark, exactly. All right, so you came with Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the pilot, which is a big one, and then uh, an episode where Randy has cancer on Home Improvement. All right, (laughs) moving to 1983, Mark, where are we starting with this one? All right, man, we are going to go to a game show. That ended on April 1st, 1983, after just a very short run, because it only lasted from January 3rd to April 1st. The game show was called Just Men. It was hosted by Betty White, who actually won an Emmy for her work on the show. (laughs) It is the only Emmy for hosting that she has ever won, and it's the only game show that she has ever hosted. how weird. I love her, though. The show was created by Rick Rosner, who was producing Chips at the time, would go on to be involved in creating Hollywood Squares. Uh, The gameplay involved two female contestants, one of them usually a returning champion, would try to guess answers from a panel of seven men. And in turn, they would try to win keys to a brand new car. (laughs) Only men, huh? So I also went on and I found an article in the Hartford Current, April 4th, 1983, where it unfortunately announces the cancellation of this show. It says NBC sacks game shows. The Peacock Network bids sayonara to a pair of dreadful morning game shows effective immediately. The hit where Hitman, which bombed with Peter Tomarkin and a video game motif and Just Men with Betty White. Arriving today are Dreamhouse and what is my second selection for the television round, and I'm actually not even going to talk about this much because... On June 20th, 1983, Lydia Cornell actually appeared on this show with the aforementioned <laughs> Betty White. What is it? <laughs> the show that she was on was New Battle Stars. Oh my God, I vaguely remember this. <laughs> so yeah, New Battle Stars is my second selection. It's not Battle Stars, this is the New Battle Stars, <laughs> which actually came in and only lasted 13 episodes. Oh my God, I've got to see this. April 14th, 1983, and ended on July 1st, 
1983. It was very similar gameplay style mm-hmm. to Hollywood Squares, where there would be questions and answers with celebrities, and they would have to light up their selected triangles, and oh, not yeah. it wasn't tic-tac-toe this time. I see it right now. There I am on YouTube. <laughs> so weird. Is there a lot of things? Because you were actually in a ton of stuff in the 80s. You were in a lot of like huge shows, like Quantum Leap, Full House, TJ Hooker, Knight Rider, Eighteen, Knight Rider, Hunter, Hardball. Do you MSM. remember? Yeah, Six Love Boats, Two Hotels, Fantasy Island, Quantum Leap, Hardball. Hardball was a weird one. That was um, with the guy with long hair from Oh Richard Tyson. I remember that one? Yeah, and then I did Battle of the Network Stars, and I remember Howard Cosell yelling at me because I was the only one that would do the water sports. I had William Shatner refused to get his hair wet and Joan Collins refused to get her makeup wet. So I'm like doing all the water sports and I don't know how to kayak at all. And he's yelling, Cornell, Cornell cannot turn the kayak around. You can hear him on YouTube yelling and mortified, spin the kayak screen in circles. (laughs) Were you on a lot of game shows then? Apparently I was on TV all last week and the week several times this, this spring so far, I'm not this spring, but since January. On Buzzer TV or the Game Show Network, I was on Match Match Game Hollywood Squares and Super Password. Yeah. You used to do five shows in a day, and you change change your outfit five times. So it looked like you were doing a show every night. Ah. And, so you get a little inside dish yeah. of how classic game shows yeah. work. Hey, who was the host of this? Burt Convy, Battle Stars? I think it was. I did a love boat with him. And um, remember the Mamas yep. and the Papas, Michelle Phillips? Yeah. Diane Ladd, Laura Dern's mom, Patty Duke, Burnt Codney, and Artie Johnson played drag queens. They, they ran around in nightgowns and high heels because they were spying on their wives. And we were all in the, in the sauna together. What a seed. <laughs> <laughs> the lovers were so... Do you rem- like, what's your most memorable of all the, like, well, these episodes, like the, the ones that you did, Tuesdays that you did, like TJ Hooker and, you know, like Full House or whatever. What, which one was, like, your favorite one that you did? Oh, God. Knight Rider, probably, because... We went to the Magic Mountain yes. and rode the roller coaster. What? And then we made out afterwards. <laughs> you and Hasselhoff? <laughs> yeah, it was like a little... I should, I've never said that to anyone before. Do you want us to cut that out? Um, <laughs> oh, my God. That's That hilarious. was so long ago. Well, it's, I guess it's not hilarious. It is now. I mean, we've seen so many pictures of, uh, like, promo pictures that he had for Knight Rider that he did back in the day that, are, like, now when you look at them, they're like jaw dropping, like him sitting on the mm-hmm. hood of Kit with his tight ass jeans. You're like, how does he even breathe in those? Like, what is going on? And his hair is always coiffed. <laughs> this big hair. We always had. We all had big hair then. It was ridiculous. Lots of hair. You could land an aircraft carrier on my head. It looked like I had big wing. The wingspan was so huge. But um, wait, no, I loved. I loved working on Hunter. But they made me dive into Lake Malibu. I kept saying, I'll do my own stunts. And they went, okay, dive in. I had to dive into Lake Malibu and then swim to back to the houseboat and get out of the water. And they forgot to put a stair little ladder in there. So there's another boat with all the camera crew on it watching me from behind. And I'm struggling to get my, <laughs> my rear end up on the boat. And all I know is they've got a, a straight close-up of my butt the whole time. <laughs> and they didn't use that shot. But I'm thinking they're, they're using it somewhere to make fun of me. It was like the worst Never do your own stunts. And then on A-Team, David Hemmings directed. He played, he was in Gladiator. He was an actor, a British actor, who was also in a very famous film called Blow Up, Antonioni, years ago in, in England. But he became a director. and He directed the A-Team I was in. 
And he said, Lydia, do you mind sitting in the car with a convertible while the helicopter comes just a few inches above your head? And I went, sure, no problem. And it, like the helicopter went so close to my head, it felt like my whole body was being lifted up. Oh my God. Just never do your own stunts is all I can say. Did your hair <laughs> stay in place though from the hairspray? Yes. No. <laughs> It acted like a sail. That's where she was getting the lift from. <laughs> right. The the amount of Aquanet in her hair made her way more aerodynamic and gave her lift. Exactly. It was fun um, in on Hunter because after that I had to go. I had all wet hair. And then we had a big makeout scene. And then we go back to the, the cabin and I have to stand on a, two huge boxes to get up to Fred Dreyer. He's six foot seven. Wow. So... You know, you have to be on Apple boxes so they can get your lips to lock in the same, you know, symmetrical position. I didn't, real, <laughs> I didn't realize he was, he was a professional football player, right? Yeah. Yeah. Damn, he was six, seven. I didn't realize he was that tall. Hasselhoff's tall too, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was fun. I was playing a race car driver. I did, I was a race car driver in so many different shows, those Stephen J. Cannell shows. And then in, in Hunter, the, um, the stunt woman wrecked the red Ferrari. I was supposed to drive a red Ferrari around. And she was my exact replica from behind. And so she broke the Ferrari so we couldn't open the door. So they said, Lydia, just jump over the door when you get in the car, just like in Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> I remember I had to like jump into the car over the car door. <laughs> so much fun. And you just said yes, just to go with it. You were like, I got this part. I just got to do yeah. it. Oh and she did God. it first take, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, how many times did it take you to like jump into the car the way they wanted? I actually think by the third try, I said, no more. I can't do this. <laughs> yeah. Can you just get the shot where I'm already in the driver's seat? Like, yeah. Can exactly. that work? All right. So let's uh, let's pass this one over to you, Lydia. We got uh, on the 80s or on the 90s side, rather, we got Sabrina the Teenage Witch. We got Randy getting cancer and home improvement, which is remarkable and then we got uh just men and of course the new battle stars which you were on so uh where are we going we're going 80s or would 90s? it be wrong to choose my i kind of love melissa joan hart but i really want to pick <laughs> yourself <laughs> i did the same thing to robert tepper i like gave him a pick where i was like dude if you don't take this one like you have no career because this is like your defining moment and he's like and he's like fuck you man he's like yeah i gotta go with that <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Oh, my God. So if, let me think, let me think. Battlestars was cute. I love Betty White. I think I want to go with Betty White. As much as I love Alyssa Joan Hart, I love Betty White. All right. So Ted Knight's, you know, she was on the Mary Tyler Moore show with my TV dad. So there's a connection there. Yeah. yeah. How was Ted Knight to work with? Oh, my God. I have so many funny stories about him. So many stories. He was... He was like a real dad to me at times and there was, he was very strict and I would go to work and I'd be afraid to look in his eyes and he would stand on his toes to get into my eye line. We were both kind of, he didn't want anyone to be taller than him. So I had to like wear, I couldn't wear high heels. We had some struggles in the beginning, but we became very, very close and I cried the hardest at his funeral. I remember sitting on the front row with Ed Asner and Mary Tyler Moore and just sobbing. But we had, you know, a real father, love, father, daughter kind of relationship. He was, it was kind of a love hate relationship. A lot of things happened on that show, which nobody knows yet. Someday. Yeah. When will that come out? <laughs> How old were you when you started uh, Too Close for Comfort? Well, I was, um, I graduated college. So I was older than, I was 25 when I started and I had to play 18. Wow. 
and he was yeah, yeah obviously he was way older than i mean he he always scared the shit out of me and um what's the uh yeah. the one movie he was in where <laughs> mike you should know this uh i want oh, to caddyshack? caddyshack where he's oh, yes. every time he would get pissed off with like Ooh, as a kid he, uh, i couldn't oh. <laughs> yeah he i was like well, god there's well, something wrong with that dude, guy. he's the best he's, like, <laughs> he's seriously the best i love him he's just the oh best oh my god i love him we had a really embarrassing thing happen on the Merv Griffin show, which Deborah and I were both like very naive and very scared to be on a talk show. And Olivia Newton John and John Travolta and Matt Latanzi, they were in the green room coming on after us. And so the whole family's on the show. Merv Griffin has our whole cast on there. It was just about us. And then they were gonna do Olivia Newton John. So Ted's sitting there with Audrey Meadows, Ted Knight, Jim Bullock, Nancy Dusso, and then they bring out Deborah. And Merv says, what was Ted really like? And she goes, she was scared. And she goes, I mean, she was just nervous. And she said, well, he's kind of a kinky dad. <laughs> and then Merv, everyone looked kind of puzzled. And then Merv went, whoa, what does that mean? And he goes, we'll come back and we'll bring the youngest member of the Rush family out. And we'll ask him what he means by kinky. <laughs> so I come out after the commercial break and they ask me what, and I'm trying to make an impression and be funny, right? So Merv says, what does she mean by kinky? And I said, well, he likes to look down our blouses and pop our bras and lift up our skirts now and then. Oh, my God. That. There was dead silence. I looked down at Ted's eyeballs were like blood curdling. I feel like I almost fainted or passed out. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then Ted's wife is on the front row. And I thought it was funny. Ted was never lewd. He was never... He, it was nothing like that. It was no me too thing at all. He was just funny. Like we were always goofing around. We would always go up and pinch each other's butts and throw spit wads. And <laughs> the whole cast was real playful that way, but it was never sexual, but it came off like it was. <laughs> oh my God. That's gotta be on YouTube. I'm sure. I wish I could find it. They cut it out. And I think they threw, I would give anything to find that piece of tape. So after the show, Deborah and I were mortified. We went home we spent the night together crying. We were shaking, crying. We go to work the next day. We went to his dressing room to apologize. And we went in like little, you know, meek little, oh, Ted, we're so sorry. And he said, how dare you? And then he suddenly burst into laughter and he goes, it's okay. They cut the tape and they threw away the tape. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> Imagine he was like, next time, be more careful. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes he really scared us. Oh my God. That is fantastic. I wonder how many times that stuff like that happens and it gets cut and we just never know about it. And everyone on the backside, like you and everybody else was like yeah. totally mortified of this whole thing. You know, that's it's just gotta happen a lot. Yeah. Well, I know how many things get cut from this show. So just yeah. saying. <laughs> yeah. I know it gets cut from this show too. Like sometimes like we'll be recording and I'm like, I look at Mark and I'm like, yeah, that's not yep, going. Yep, <laughs> that's, <laughs> nope. That's out. Oh All right, so we're we're headed to the two point rounds now. Uh, we're at uh, Mark. You're up two to one. You have control of the board. There's only two categories left. Where are we going? Uh, let's go to the news round. Ooh. Ooh, okay. All right. So my first news story uh, is about U.S. Interior Secretary James G. Watt. Name might not be too familiar, but on April 6, 1983, he banned a band from playing on the July 4th Washington Mall concert. Now, the band that he banned, his reason for it was that he said he, he wanted a more wholesome band. He, he was afraid that this band would attract the wrong element with drug users, 
in lieu of that, he wanted to put together a program featuring Wayne Newton, <laughs> who would be a little more wholesome. I love Wayne Newton. Needless to say, the ban of this band did not go very well, where President Reagan is such a huge fan of them, he actually gave James Watt a plaster statue of a foot with a hole in it. <laughs> Because James Watt shot himself in the foot by banning this band. And the band that he banned that just attracts the wrong element in drug users was the Beach Boys. Wow. You're kidding. Wow. The Beach Boys were banned. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, fans protested, even including the president, even protested on this one. So... Wow, that's fantastic. That's my first news story. James Watt and the ban of the Beach Boys. I love he that. did overturn the ban, but uh, they did not play at the July 4th concert anyway. That's a lot of bands, you said. I actually thought it was kind of impressive. <laughs> yeah, ban. they banned the band of the band of Beach Boys. A lot of alliteration. All right, so my second news story comes from the LA Weekly, dated April 7th, 1983. And again, we go to President Reagan. The headline for this article says, Reagan's new poverty plan. In a closed-door hush-hush conference with his cabinet and top policy advisors this week, the Weekly has learned President Reagan has outlined a major new anti-poverty program that is almost certain to inspire a flood of bumper stickers. The great orator announced to his subordinates that the next step in his economic recovery plan is to eat the poor. Using color chart with a Star Wars laser sword for a pointer, Old Silver Tongue elaborated on the major benefits of this program. It will, he said, lower the cost of food, decrease unemployment, welfare, raise the standard of living, decrease crime, eliminate poverty. Also, as a special concession to the National Rifle Association, the program would allow for inner city hunting. What? (laughs) Wait. (laughs) Wait. Like surviving the game? type hunting correct what that is just the opening paragraph the article goes on to explain how the new program is we should kill and eat the poor (gasps) of course this article is all a farce as it was published in the first week of april edition of the la weekly where they publish all of their fake and phony news stories (laughs) for april fool's day (laughs) all right so yeah right next to it there is a big advisory to readers that this is the issue we warned you about Oh, the only the entertainment listings and the ads are real. The rest is parody, you know, for April Fools. So it was like their version of the Onion back in nineteen eighty. Yeah, exactly. But back in nineteen eighty three. So those are my two news stories: the Beach Boys getting banned and mm-hmm. President Reagan's new plan to eat the poor. Wow, that's funny. Very nice. All right, what do you got in nineteen ninety six, there, Mike Ranger? Well, uh, let me tell you, there, uh, Mancroft. I came across uh, two different articles, both from the Daily News and both from April 3rd, 1996, and both about CBS. Uh, one was titled, Night of a Hundred Snores, Too Typical of CBS, and the other one was, <laughs> NCAA Gives CBS Big Bounce, But Ratings Still Record Low. Both articles essentially saying the same thing that had become so common for CBS in the 90s, that CBS was in big trouble. And it's no wonder, with the most exciting show for the evening of April 3rd on CBS being an episode of Dave's World. Uh, The article goes on to say, It doesn't take a professional ratings analyst to understand the network was in trouble, and that CBS had no one to blame but itself. At the time of this article, they were third in the ratings. NBC and ABC were first and second. Uh, Now, when I was growing up in the 90s, CBS was the old person's channel. You, You didn't go down there. 
And uh, they did return uh, to first in the 98-99 season when the NFL returned. And I actually wanted to ask you, Lydia, since you were working on a lot of different shows in, in the 80s, what would you say the uh, perception of CBS in the 80s versus the 90s was? That's interesting. I'm thinking about if I ever did any CBS shows. I know Les Moonves, when he was in power, I was very disturbed by something I heard. He said um, he was trying to make it more youthful, and he said women should women should not be over 18 all women should be the age of 18 to 23 he didn't think women should age past 23 or be viable on tv i actually heard this and he didn't want writers over 35 years old and i think there was a huge writers lawsuit over that i know his wife his ex-wife nancy moonves but yeah i think cbs was known as an older network well in 96 uh murder she wrote is still on the air Oh yeah, that's a great. Yeah, no, actually, if if CBS didn't move move them from their popular Sunday night time slot, um, Mm -hmm. that's really what killed their ratings. Were great up until that last season. Mm. I think Simon and Simon was on CBS. I did that show. That was really fun. I played a a a Vanna White character. Ah, like a game show host. Yeah, with um, the funniest actor. Oh my god, I got to look up his name. Yeah, a game show host, and I talked. I talked about microwave ovens all the time. That's a funny thing. All right, so Mike, so both of your stories are basically uh, CBS being a piece of shit in 96. Um, you was- could say that CBS was at its low point. Okay. So that's that's really the story is that CBS was had it's a good thing mm-hmm. they were in third, but they were in third like they were they were f- really far behind everybody else. You guys are historians, aren't you? You guys, you know a lot about you. You know a lot of obscure things. Yeah, a lot of stupid okay. things that, like, yeah, like but it. It, it has not helped me in regular life whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> What's your second pick, man? What's the second pick? All right, so I found an article from the Daily News on April fourth, nineteen ninety six, titled "Unabomb Suspect Held: Kin Tips FBI to Former Professor." That's right, the elusive Unabomber and former Berkeley professor who terrorized the nation for 17 years was arrested at, at his isolated Montana cabin on April 3rd, 1996. He was turned in by his brother who had become suspicious after discovering some incriminating letters in their childhood home. The shack the FBI found Ted Kaczynski in had no power or running water and an outhouse. Between 1978 and 95, he had killed three people and injured 23 others in his nationwide bombing campaign. He was sentenced to eight life sentences without the possibility of parole. God, I remember that. I remember clearly the day it happened. Yeah, my dad looks like the Unabomber. <laughs> oh, really? Grizzly <laughs> Adams, lots of hair. <laughs> yeah, that was huge, man. That was like, especially for a couple of years, that was always yeah. on the news about the Unabomber. Nobody knew who he was why he was doing it and then he would start sending letters from his manifesto and all that kind of stuff so that's a pretty big deal all right so even though you had the cbs uh turning into garbage you also came with something huge there with the unabomber getting arrested uh and then mark of course you had the uh the beach boys getting banned and Mm -hmm. uh the anti-poverty uh parody (laughs) eat the poor well i have to say i I'm going to pick the Beach Boys because I dated Dennis Wilson. I, I, don't, I don't usually talk about people I dated, but he was the first celebrity I ever went out with, and it was up at Caribou Ranch, and I love the Beach Boys. I love almost all of their songs. I listen to them all the time, and my 
stepfather listens to them. It brings him out of his dementia. He actually sings along to the Beach Boys. Wow. So it was so much fun meeting them because they owned Caribou Ranch. They were, I worked up at Caribou Ranch, which is a recording studio in Colorado when I was in college. And that's where the Beach Boys and Chicago, Elton John recorded, Billy Joel. And I met, I built, picked Billy Joel up at the airport and I crashed him into a snowbank. Nice. And it was fun. Wow. <laughs> I couldn't drive a four-wheel drive vehicle, but I picked Joni Mitchell at the airport and Carol King. We made, I was a kitchen girl. So it was really fun working there. Wow. And I have a soft spot for them in my heart. So you, you dated him, this is before Too Close for Comfort. It was before he died. <laughs> I, I hope so. I mean, <laughs> that would be a weird relationship. Yeah. No, it was before Too Close for Comfort. It was, it was my, the summer before my senior year in college, and I worked up at Caribou. And then I also became a road manager for the Michael Murphy Band. Um, he had a song called Wildfire. Beautiful song. I don't know if I remember that one. Okay. I wish I could find it and play it for you right now, but. I'm sure it's on Spotify. That's a, the one great thing about like anytime men- somebody mentions a song that I've never heard, it's not like mm-hmm. maybe like seven, eight years ago, even where yeah. you'd be like, oh God, well, let me try to find this. Now I can just open up an app and go, okay, uh, Michael yeah. Murphy band wildfire. <laughs> then boom. There it is. So I'll check it out. Okay. So yeah. So that was a really fun time in my life before I came to California and got the series. Wow. All right. So you're going with uh, with 83 on that one, not even going with the Unabomber. She's going against the grain. I know, but band the band is just too much of a great alliteration. (laughs) (laughs) So that actually gives at this point, we're playing for nothing in the last round because Mark actually takes the game. It is four to one, but we'll play the last round just because that's what we do. Okay. Sorry, Mike. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Don't worry, I won't have a cosmic cow. <laughs> Mark, you control the board. All right, so let's go to the final round, and that's music. Now, I got two songs here that came out, and I think you're going to be familiar with both of them. This first song came out on April 3rd, 1983, and topped the Billboard Hot 100. It also earned a platinum record and the Academy Award for Best Original Song. It won the Golden Globe for Best Original Song and a Grammy for Best Female Pop Vocals. The song I am talking about is Flashdance, What a Feeling oh, yeah. by Irene Cara. I mean, everybody knows this song. If you go to her Spotify, her three most played songs are Flashdance, What a Feeling. Mm-hmm. So with, I think the first one has over 60 million listens. The second one has over 88 million listens. Oh, it's just one of the all-time great singles. That's my first selection, Flash Dance, What a Feeling by Irene Cara, a song that I'm sure everybody is familiar with. My second music selection is actually an album that came out on April 1st, 1983. It is the debut album by this band. And it is self-entitled. The album I'm talking about is The Violent Femmes, Violent Femmes. And of course, this album gave us the hit song, Blister in the Sun, which is a song that I'm sure everybody knows just as well as they know, Flashdance. This is my wedding song. Oh, cool. Wow. That's awesome. No, I'm just kidding. Is there a song about masturbation? (laughs) I'm just kidding. I I was was at the altar by myself, so. (laughs) Oh, okay. That'd be weird. (laughs) One of those solo jobs, you know. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, so those are my two music selections. The Violent Femmes 
and Flashdance, What a Feeling by Irene Cara. Mm -hmm. Just two songs that they came out in 1983 and they've been stuck in people's heads ever since. Yeah, totally. That's two solid picks. Now, see, the one thing you don't get right now, Lydia, is we're doing what this episode is called the week experience where it's only one week in time. So -hmm. it's very hard to find two fantastic picks in one round in a week. Usually, like, if it's a month-long episode, you have a lot more space. You get a lot better albums. In a week, mm-hmm. you don't really get as much. But what Mark just did right there, that's a freaking bomb freaking uh, round right there. Flashdance and Violent Femmes. Wow, awesome. Flashdance was actually the number three single in 1983. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That song was just massive. Damn, I didn't even think it was that big. I know it was a big song. I didn't think it was that big. All right, uh, Mike, what do you got in 1996? Well, on April 2nd, 1996, the Beastie Boys dropped an instrumental compilation album originally released through the Beastie Boys French Fan Club. This is a collection of instrumentals from Check Your Head to Ill Communication. This funk and jazz album has a 70s sound and has been re-released as a special edition double vinyl. So look at that. Beastie Boys releasing an album to their French fan club. I thought you were going to say ill communication. I was like, oh, he's got a good one. No, no. That's what I thought at first. And I'm like, <laughs> not oh, that lucky. French fan. Club. Yeah. All right. <laughs> That's a deep cut right there. Yeah. All right. That's what I'm talking about. That's the weak experience right there. That's what you normally get. That is very obscure. And I like it. Yeah. And for my second pick, I have a little bit of uh, music news. Because uh, f- I found an article from April 3rd in 1996 in the San Francisco Examiner titled MC Hammer Files for Bankruptcy Protection. The article says that Hammer has filed for bankruptcy protection from his creditors, saying he has assets of only $1 million and debts totaling at least $10 million. Hammer filed for protection on April 1st, 1996. At the time of release of his album, Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him, in 1990, his earnings were an estimated $33 million a year by Forbes magazine. The bankruptcy petition put Hammer's number of creditors between 200 and 999, a 36-page list, a large entourage, 40,000-square-foot mansion, thoroughbred horses, cars, helicopters, and copyright wow. infringement lawsuits all contributed to hurting Hammer. Thank God Hammer's lawyers remembered with bankruptcy protection, you truly can't touch this. <laughs> wow, that is really, it really worked, huh? He got to do that, huh? Yeah. yeah. I think he did it a couple times from what I remember. He had no tigers though, huh? Not that I know of, but you know. <laughs> no tigers, yeah. <laughs> you, would, you would think he would have a couple tigers. I mean, everybody else had tigers. Well, I think he had a couple, but then this lady Carol just showed up to his house. She took all his tigers Joe Exotic (laughs) Alright so uh, We're uh, we're looking at man This is a rough one Alright Lydia we got uh, On the 80s side we got Flashdance and Violent Femmes And on the 90s We got a French fan club Version of an instrumental Beastie Boys album And uh, MC Hammer going bankrupt For the first time This is death row years huh 96? Wow. Yes. Yep. So I was, you know, raising a little baby boy in 94 and I was going to Legoland and Disneyland every day. Literally, I was going to the train, the Pioneer train station in LA and I was living in the Lion King or living in the, in the little boy world. So my mind wasn't on music that much at the time other than, you know, 
um, Barney. Oh my God. <laughs> the big purple dinosaur. And, and also I kind of wish that you guys would each, if, if you're going to stick with a category, you would each pick a song. So it would be more equal because a news article versus a song, my heart goes with the song. And I want to give more wins to the nineties, but I really <laughs> love, Flash dance. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's definitely kind of hard to uh, to go with the '90s on that. My one. heart goes there. Yeah, I immediately want to hear that song right now, and I have such great feelings of that of that era in my life. You know, the '80s. You could sing it if you want. What a feel! I can't sing it right now. <laughs> Somebody give her a beat. I highly uh, recommend that everybody listening to this just go on Spotify, go on YouTube, wherever. Listen to Flashdance, What a Feeling. It's just one of those feel-good songs. And the video is great, too, with Jennifer Beals dancing. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it'll give you, it'll uplift you for about two minutes. Exactly. It's worth it. It's a great workout to do. Oh, it is. Yeah. Irene Cara did Fame, too, as well, right? Yeah. When I was uh, I was in sixth grade, and that was like our final song for chorus. So we had like all these people in the gymnasium, all the parents, all the families, all the the students or whatever. And uh, you know, like the uh, the fame, like at the end where they they have like yeah. a bunch of fames, but there's like a pause. This one girl, yep. Rosanna, in my grade, she did the fame when she wasn't supposed to, so it was like dead silence, <laughs> and all these people in the audience, and she's like fame. And everyone yeah. was just like, what? What just happened? <laughs> it, was, oh, it was so bad. It was a full like two or three seconds before it was supposed to happen. Oh, my God. It was so bad. Still remember that. Was Jennifer pole dancing on the, in this video with Flashdance? It was a stripper, right? She was like a working class stripper. Yeah, she was like on a chair getting water thrown yeah. on her. And, and we wonder- she was a welder. She was a welder. She? Yeah. she was a steel worker. I just watched. And we that. wonder why men feel kind of entitled to touch women. <laughs> it just seems like we were feeding them images that were so over-sexualized, you know. Even and I, I had all these posters out. ABC promoted me, and these I was on all fours, you know, posing in all these posters. What was that like when they they asked you to do that stuff? Like you didn't think in the back of your head. Like, eh, I don't know. To be honest with you, it was very natural because at the time we thought we were just in our heads as an actor, as an actress. In those days, I would call myself an actress, but a lawyer doesn't call herself a lawyeress or a doctor, a doctress, you know. Right. The only the only words that the Tresen are mistress, waitress, and adulteress. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I have this line in my script. I'm writing a script and it goes, all human suffering is caused by Victoria's Secret. And I actually feel that when you wake up and you finally realize, wait a minute, I was really just totally sexually harassed all the time, but I would never want to ruin anyone's life for it. I would never want to name names today. Um, you know, it's just something we all colluded in doing in those days because the advertising industry and the end of the feminist movement and the Reagan era made women into sex objects again. We were all walking around in bikinis and short shorts. And on the show, they dressed me in clothes like that. They promoted the show with posters. Right. And I thought it was just normal. But you don't realize till later. I mean, my first meeting with an agent in, in Los Angeles, I walk in. I'm not kidding. This actually happened. He had his pants down behind the desk. And he Get said, come over here. here. You want to sit on my lap? And I, instead of being shocked and horrified, I said, oh, I've got to go. I have a phone call. And I twirled away as if I was embarrassed to hurt his feelings. You know, that's wow. how we... We all were like that. I, I don't know any woman that felt like she was equal with a man in those days. 
That is insane that that actually, I mean, we all see it now with, you know, all the news stories, all the Me Too stuff that came out and the Harvey Weinstein thing and everything else. But that was real. Like, you know, I'm sure you have like a lot of stories that are similar to that, you know. But I wouldn't want to wouldn't want to name names because to me, some women are going over the top a little bit. It's like, why would you want to bring up a date you had with somebody and ruin their life today? Right. And I kind of blame the, the whole entire culture. We were in a culture that was mesmerized by pole dancing. And, you know, there was a whole pole dancing movement in the Sopranos and all the TV shows. They had lap dance clubs. Yep. And it was as if Wall Street bankers were going to lap dance clubs on their lunch hour. And then my grandmother was running around to buy a pole to go pole dancing for exercise class. You know? <laughs> well, people do that now, though. People like have poles in their yeah. house to do like exercise, which is. It's a, it's a male fantasy that was sold to us, kind of, you know, and I'm not, I love men, but they didn't get high heel. I know I went out and bought a pole right after I saw Magic Mike, <laughs> so. That one right here. <laughs> Mark just rolls around on top of it on the floor because there's no right. If you try to, like, jump on that thing, man. Whew. I'm going to see that, Mark. <laughs> I just converted the whole pole into a giant bomb. <laughs> That works too. Private show. <laughs> That's a, you know, it's funny. Like I was talking to my wife before and uh, just telling her who was coming on and stuff. And she was like, yeah, I remember the show. L- let me see a picture. And I, of course I Google it and I just did a Google image. And like the first like couple images, it's got like, you know, the family photos from too close to comfort, but then it's got you in a bikini mm-hmm. and like, maybe like the fourth or fifth picture there. <laughs> And that's just what popped up. And I just looked for too close to cr- for comfort. I didn't look for anything else, you know? So yeah, it's, it's crazy how that, uh, that all came up, but yeah. The worst thing about being a celebrity is they take, they try to catch you in the worst photograph possible. Mm-hmm. And like if you're on the red carpet and they, I had a stalker and they caught, caught a picture of me looking with my mouth open and they post that one going, she looks crazy. Maybe her stalker, you know, they try to make you look as crazy as the person they're writing about. You know, they kind of do it on purpose. They try to catch you at your worst. (laughs) Yeah. That's insane. So you had a stalker in the 80s? No, no. It was more recently. It was in um, 2013. Oh, my God. Did they arrest the guy? I had four sheriff's departments working on it. Kelsey Grammer and I had the same stalker, and he posed as a war hero. But he was a convicted felon, and he moved into my home temporarily because I thought he was a, a war hero, like a decorated army lieutenant colonel who'd been wounded in, in vietnam and he wore his uniform all the time he wasn't anything he was a convicted felon oh my wait you had this wow. guy he lived in your house he told me he was on the heart transplant list and he was a wounded veteran so all my fans said you should let him stay with you while you're going through your divorce and <laughs> oh my god gets weirder so i have this whole it's 12 chap it's like a 12 episode crimeody it's like a crime comedy you can't imagine how crazy this 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 whole story turned out to be. When did you figure out that he was full of shit? Um, I mean, what could, this? I know you have a book coming out and stuff, so you can't give everything away. But like, at yeah. what point were you like, wait a minute, this this is not real? Okay, it's really weird. We were called into the FBI to report on the organized crime ring behind this website that Kelsey invested money in. Kelsey had no idea these guys were criminals. Organized crime ring. And the FBI kept calling me and these three other people in. And she, one of the women was my lawyer. She was a lawyer also who was working for her own family law. And we all went in to report on the organized crime ring. We were trying to get evidence. And this stalker comes on. He starts insinuating himself into the whole lawsuit. And he starts to, he puts Kelsey Grammer's name on the lawsuit. It's a class action lawsuit. 
we were trying to get the money back for all these fans who invested money in this website. I said, Kelsey has nothing to do with this. And the stalker posed as an attorney. And my lawyer believed he was a real attorney. And he put Kelsey's name on the lawsuit. And suddenly in the, in the, on the news, it says, Lydia Cornell sues Kelsey Grammer. I never sued Kelsey Grammer. We're friends. And the whole, everybody still thinks that because I finally had to unravel the whole thing. And I discovered that he was hacking himself from inside the house of the lawyer. I saw the IP address. I had to go to court, file a restraining order. All my fans flew in from all over the country. I had bodyguards. We all went down to the courthouse together. Oh my God. We were filming it for a reality show. And suddenly the judge looked at the um, IP address on the email. He goes, Lydia's right. This man is pretending to be hacked. It's, it's a long story. It's very complicated, but. Wow. And he was, and it was a whole stolen valor thing on top of that. Yeah. And then he posed as a, he stole the identity of an actual war hero. So there's so many things. This guy finally escaped. He lived in Tennessee and I went down to Tennessee to meet with the sheriff when I was coming back from Myrtle beach. And I had a lot of fun. Really. I met a lot of law enforcement all over the country. We become very close. <laughs> I mean, you know, some really nice people. They were trying to help me. That is insane. It's crazy. How wait? How long did he live in your house for? Oh my God! On and off. He he was there for a couple months, but he'd go back and forth to the lawyer's place in Glendora, and he he would tell us he acted like he was the attorney for the case, right? Because he studied law in prison, so we thought he was a real attorney, and he would say, "Lydia, you shouldn't talk on the phone to to the other attorney." And he said, you've got to go meet her in person. So I'd have to go to her avocado orchard and meet in a shed to convey information to the attorney. <laughs> My God. Because the stalker told us to. It was so, it was crazy. Wow. And this was only like, what, eight years ago, you said? Yeah. And I, he, I had um, Airbnb roommates at the time because I was going through a divorce. And I threw holy water on one roommate. And I'm not even Catholic because he convinced me she was demonic. bipolar. <laughs> <laughs> She ran around the house naked and my son was there. He was like a teenager. I'm sure he was okay with that. Yeah. My son loved it. He loved <laughs> oh my God. I cannot wait for this book. Yeah, to just from the stories that you've shared with us tonight on this episode, this is just going to be an incredible read. I have to turn everything into comedy. That's how it all, it all plays out that way for some reason. Awesome. You got to <laughs> laugh at yourself, right? Yeah. Again, thank you, Lydia, for coming on the show and being our judge tonight, man. This was excellent. This was fun. You guys are, I, I love your show. I never knew. I never knew about this show before. And I'm thrilled I discovered you because now I can tune in every week. Are you on every week? Every week. Every It comes out every Wednesday. What do you call it? Uh, we're with CLNS. So are you, you know, uh, Nick Gelso? I know Nick really well. We used to do Beats and Eats together. Yeah. So oh, I love him. that's how we all got connected. So yeah, definitely. Like when's this book coming out? Well, I was turning it in. I didn't, I turned it, now I've turned it into the actual real book. At first, it was just a story about divorce. It was really funny. But now they want me to put the celebrity stories in. So I just finished doing all that. So it's going into the, hopefully the publisher in about a week or so. Yeah, who knows? Like, I probably couldn't even give a timeline now with all the crap going on. You can put a timeline on anything. But yeah, when that comes out, we need to have you back. So you can at least like, you know, tell, give us more. Because I think like now people are going to be like, yeah, seriously, give us the rest of the story. So at least they can, uh, they'll check out the book. Which it's it's so, it gets so weird with this, this stalker guy. You will, you'll die laughing. Some of the stories I can't even begin to tell you. Just like Paul Harvey. I want to know the rest of the story. I love Paul (laughs) Harvey. I grew up on Paul Harvey, so. 
Yeah, me too. Hey, where are you guys located? Mike and I are in New York and uh, Mark's in Virginia. So we're, uh, we're held up. Like right now I'm in my basement. So can't even use like a studio. Where are you uh, Orange County. It's like uh, about an hour north of the city. Really? How cool. Yeah. I went to high school in New York. Oh yeah. Where at? Okay. So I was born in El Paso, Texas and I spoke Spanish fluently and I lived in the desert and, you know, really, I never saw trees except in Rio Doso or New Mexico, Albuquerque. And we moved to Scarsdale. Oh, yeah. We didn't fit in. I wanted, I wanted to be a Jewish male comic, but my parents weren't supportive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Scarsdale's not too far. We were total outcasts, and it was such a fun place to grow up, though. I went to Scarsdale High. Oh, my God. I bet the stories there are great, too. <laughs> yeah, we just, I just went to my high school reunion. It was really fun. Oh, man. So Lydia, tell all of our listeners where they can get a hold of you, where they can check out all your current projects and what you got going on. Okay, I'm all on I'm on everything. I have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Lydia Cornell. But I have five Facebook pages. One is for a um a series of spiritual coincidences that I had that are so amazing and they're beautiful and they're it's called God Shots. It's not religious, but it's about these uncanny synchronicities. And that happened when I got sober 25 years ago. So I'm on uh, my, my website, LydiaCornell.com, L-Y-D-I-A-C-O-R-N-E-L-L, LydiaCornell.com. And on there is Twitter and Facebook links. So I'd love to keep you posted on everything and stay in touch. I love this show, Dueling Decades. <laughs> Sweet. Again, once uh, the book comes out, you got to come back so you can like tell a little bit more. Definitely. I'd love to. Thank you, guys. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right, Duelers, well, we'll end this episode right here. But in the meantime, you can head over to DuelingDecades.com where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, on Spotify, wherever podcasts are available. And then you can head over to Facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades where you can join our private group and share some of your very own retro memories. So until next time, Duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.